Sherry Smith from the British Blacklist and today I'm joined by a veteran of the acting world, Danny <laughs> <laughs> You might have seen him in season three of Killing Eve or in the National Theatre's production of Lorraine Hansbury's play Les Blancs. Um, and he has most recently appeared opposite Adrian Lester in the world premiere of Lita Chakrabarti's new play, Him, at the Almeida mm -hmm. Theatre. <laughs> so hey Danny, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you for having me. It's lovely to meet you, Anna. How is life at the moment? I mean... Um, well, I'm in Budapest, um, hence the um, interesting background um, wow. wallpaper. Uh, this is an, uh, an apartment and they've got the whole city painted in, in wallpaper on, on the back. And I'm here filming a new TV series based on the game Halo. I don't know if you've ever played if you're a gamer, you're young, so you've probably played Halo and we're making a TV series based on the game. Oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, no, I've seen that that is coming up. Is there anything you can tell us about that yet or is it very hush-hush at the moment? Um, well, no, no, everything's sort of public now, but it, it's a massive, massive project. Um, we're in a studio here in um, Hungary and it's got uh, aliens and and you know they've, they've tried to stick as close to the actual game uh, as possible so there's a lot of AI and aliens and um, other worlds and I play a character called Jacob Halsey the scientist Halsey who creates the Master Chief I'm her estranged partner and we have a daughter together who is also a scientist. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's proving to be um, potentially a very exciting project. So the world of sci-fi, is that something that you're trying uh, to do? <laughs> well, prior to this, I think my only sci-fi excursion was Doctor Who. Um, I, I played um, Colonel Manton in, in, in one of the episodes of uh, Doctor Who. Um, yeah, it's not something I, I often get a chance to do. Do I watch a lot of sci-fi? Probably not. It's a new new excursion for me. Um, and what's it been like filming in Budapest? Is it nice over there right now? Well, we're, we're all it's totally safe. I mean, we, we, we're tested five times a week now. It was three times and now they've upped it to five times. And Budapest is uh, has a curfew that lasts from 8pm to 5am. I think it's a miracle that we can we can film at all. Everybody's very um, conscientious and and sticks to the rules. And you know, because you know, without without that, we, we we might not be able to film. So yeah, a lot like him. It just seems to be a con continuation of uh, the considerations regarding COVID and and being able to, you know, create in this new environment. It, it takes a lot of um, thought, you know, as you saw with him, you know, we were constantly, we were socially distanced the whole time. I don't think Adrian and I even shook hands, except at the end, we gave each other a hug <laughs> because um, we'd been working together for two and a half months. Um, we've been talking about this project for two years, but for the last year and a half, it's, it's been under the pandemic. So it was, it was very exciting and, and interesting to sort of, take all of those considerations but still create something that lived you know irrespective of, of, of the, the things that we have to think about now definitely i've really missed going to the theater but mm -hmm. because of that live streamed element you you got a large part of what is enjoyable 
about going to the theatre. Thank you very yeah. much for the talk. It was a, it was a pleasure. Um, you know, I think the the response, you know, I mean, I, we, we knew that we were we had something special, but the response has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, four and five star reviews and Adrian and I would be on stage, you know, we do a bow to the cameras and we had no idea, you know, who was sort of receiving this, but they, they sold out 1200 tickets a night for six performances. And so that's in excess of, you know, 2000 people watching a night because obviously, you know, one, one ticket can serve an entire family, you know, so we'd finish the show, we do our bow and, and then we'd sort of, you know, okay, right. Put our own clothes on and sort of trundle on home and then Twitter and our phones would be going crazy and so it was a really nice way to kind of receive that audience um, response delayed but overwhelming and international which was incredible and the show goes on demand this week so hopefully more people can catch it. Exactly yeah so I mean let's talk a bit more about what happens in him so like there's a lot of there's well some multi-rolling occurs in it but you are largely in the play playing the part of Benny who is his half-brother the first time at the funeral of their father Mm. um so I mean for you what would you say is like how would you summarize him what would you say is the main kind of themes of what is going on um well as as you say, the, we we discover um, that, that Gil and Benny have a, a connection quite early on in the play, and I suppose the whole story is is a journey of discovery between these two men, how much they have in common, and an exploration of male identity, male friendship, and it's surprising how rare this sort of story is you know we often have stories about you know relationships but and love relationships but they tend to be between lovers either same sex or 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 men and women so it's a a quite unconventional and i'm surprised to say quite radical really to have a, a story between two men who who love each other who fall in love with each other and that love is not a romantic, you know, is a, a platonic love, which, you know, in my own life, I have huge love with, you know, my cousins or my my brothers and some of my male friends. And it was being able to sort of express those connections that you don't often see in drama or, you know, on any platform, really. I think that's what made it so special in many ways. It's an unconventional love story between two men. I really like that framing of it, actually. I hadn't thought of it that way, but now you say it, I, I think that's the perfect way of framing the mm. relationship that you and um, Gilbert form. I think also that aspect of the male friendship, like I agree, mm. you don't really see it a lot, but I think mm. I really enjoy how um, masculinity is played with in terms of the way that we have all of this dancing and all of this singing. Right, right. It's just right. so fun. Dancing, singing, dressing up, being vulnerable with each other. And, and also the fact that there are no real sort of um, issues in terms of, we often see, you know, black characters on screen. There's usually, or, or on stage, there's usually an excuse for, for, for why they're there. Whereas, you know, in my own life and in the life of many black people I know or, or people that, you know, there's no reason 
mums, dads, <laughs> children, we have other concerns. And, uh, you know, the sort of ignorance or, if you like, issues that usually um, are portrayed in these sort of dramas regarding Black people happen outside of, and, and they pass through, but they're not the main focus. And then that was also, I thought, a, a very radical lens of, of Lolita's play. Yeah, because as much as, I mean, like, we talk about black joy as a radical thing in itself, mm, as mm. you said, it's always a problem that... Um, yes, right, really right. That they have to overcome racism um, or, or or politic, you know, and, and, and it's not to say that these characters don't exist in that world, but they're not consumed by it. It's not the, the main focus, as it is in, in most of our lives, and it was, you know, quite rare that we get to see that, so a real pleasure to sort of be able to tell that story you know and you know my 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 cousins and my brothers and all related to it on that level of yeah that's what we do that's that's how we hang that's what we laugh about and definitely you know reminiscing on the tunes that we used to listen to and 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 trying to recreate those moments you know that were formative in our years uh growing up for a, a lot of us it was very heartwarming and um beautiful reflection of our lives that, that, that was enjoyed so much. The ones that I picked up were Rapper's Delight and Getting Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was just bouncing in my uh, living room. Yeah, 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 yeah. People were dancing, yeah. I mean, when we eventually, should we get the opportunity, um, and I'm hoping we do, to do a live pr- production of it, I just can't, I'm, I'm so looking forward to how people are gonna respond to those, those moments because, you know, there's so much you learn from from performing in front of a live audience that you don't get doing a stream, obviously. I think it will be an event, like when I went to see the Barbershop Chronicles, for example, and there was just people dancing in the aisles and, you know, people had sort of turned up for a party, you know, or tree at, at, at the Young Vic, you know, the, these theatrical events where a story is told, it's multi-sensory and you get involved in, in, in the same way as, as I would, you know, when I used to rave, you know, it, it, was, it was that kind of vibe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, there's, and it's just kind of, it's really exploring the scope of the live experience and how, how far you can go, go with it. You know, there doesn't have to be an excuse for why they suddenly start dancing or singing, because that's what we do in life, I feel. You know, music is is such a huge part of certainly my life and and a lot of the people that I know. You know, whether you're singing along or or suddenly break into dance, you know, this 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 isn't uh, an unusual thing. This is how we roll, you know. And mm-hmm. so it was really nice to be able to play that. Yeah, no, it was so fun to watch as well. I mean, were all of the songs like pre-chosen in the script or did you and Adrian have a role in deciding which ones went in the play? Yeah, I mean, uh, Lolita was had, had chosen the songs um, and I think, you know, there were a few that were, there were more songs actually in there before. And, you know, as the title suggests, it's called Him. So, uh-huh. you know, music is an important part of it. So there were other songs in there, but I think they, they trimmed them down probably for all sorts of reasons, maybe licensing or, or or what have you i think they were chosen quite well and 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 sort of span quite a range of different sort of musical genres from jazz to hip-hop to r&b it's quite it's quite cool and even um some classical you know with um carol of bells that we sing yes, in, in, yeah, in the la- yeah. latter half and we had a fantastic musical director and dj wald 
who's done a lot of stuff with Zoo Nation and mm-hmm. um, Robia Milliner, who was the choreographer, and Blanche McIntyre directed it. And so there, there was a real sense of, you know, because it was quite scary to begin with, the thought of how we were going to weave our way between drama, because it's not a musical, as much as it's an unconventional love story, it's an unconventional musical in some ways as well. But mm-hmm. but how to make the music sort of not be a, an aside, that it supported the story and the telling of the story, but is also something that we could just, you know, really kind of imaginatively stretch reality, you know, stretch the, the genre. And so all of that music is really important. And sometimes the music actually expresses what the characters are feeling, like you would in a musical, you know, but not in the way that you would normally see it done. And so that was a real feat of, of sort of creatively how we make all of that work was a big thing in, in rehearsals and, and how to do that. And I think we achieved it in some ways because, you know, when I first looked at the script, I thought, how are we going to do this? And how is this going to be, you know, how's this going to work? That was really exciting to be able to kind of put all together. I think it's what one of the strengths of the show. And I think it works really well in the end. And I think it, it is, like we've talked a bit about theatre and like how it's this space that you you can do things with the audience with everyone standing up and everything like that. But yeah. I mean, in the way that it's this two-hander um, and you have the multi-rolling already, you know, the audience yeah. is willing to be like, oh, okay, they've started singing, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly, you know. And also how we create all of these other characters as well. You have a real sense of, you know, Gil's sisters. You have a real sense of Benny's um, children, Benny's wife, um, Gil's wife, the barman who throws Benny out at the beginning. You have a sense of all of these characters, but it's just two people who are creating them. And that, again, was one of the things that Lolita wanted to create. And there were other scenes as well. There were there were other um, monologues that one character was talking directly to another character who wasn't there, who wasn't seen. And, and, and um, in the end, we decided to remove those other speeches, as it were, um, monologues, because they were inferred in other parts of the play. So, so there was some, a lot of shift in in the play, and, and I think that that was a, again another really exciting thing to be working with Lolita and Adrian and, and the team on this. Lolita is not precious in her writing; she's very open to collaboration, and so it was like we were creating something from scratch. You know, it was a new play. But there was a real sort of sense of a collaborative input in how we came to the decisions that we made in the final cut. And so that was also a blessing in this time to be able to create something that hadn't been done before, but to really figure out how you're going to make this new piece live and and, and make sense. Have you been part of a process like that before where you're such a big part of making the play? Yeah, I think... That's one of the things that I've always loved about theatre, you know, often when you walk onto a film or TV set, a lot of decisions have been made before you get there. And that's something, one of the strength of doing a new piece of work um, on stage. And, you know, I mean, when I did LeBlanc, for example, you know, that was a play that had been sort of partially finished. Lorraine had not quite finished the play and her partner had um, scrabbled together all of her notes to make the play that they performed on Broadway in the 60s. 
when we received that play, we had a dramaturg and um, Yael Farber was very uh, instrumental in trying to, and, and the estate were very, very generous and gave us the rest of Lorraine's notes. So we were able to take the existing play and flesh it out and make it, you know, we didn't use it, any other words. They were all Lorraine's words, but we were able to just do some re reshifting and rejigging. And in the end, I think we ended up with a completely new piece of work. And that is just one of the joys of working in theatre that you can that you, that you can do that. Um, I mean, I think even when you're doing a Shakespeare, you know, people cut stuff and add stuff, you know, or re reshape stuff in order to make it sing for, for the audience that they're talking to now, but also because there's always the question is, why are you doing this piece? And, and what is it that you want this piece to say? And you have so much more freedom, it, it seems, in the creation of theatre pieces before, during, and even on, in, on stage, in, on the night. It's a moving, living thing, you know, theatre. And, and that's, that's what makes it so exciting, you know. Anything can go wrong and you have to try and find a way. So it feels like you're recreating a new piece every night so that's definitely something that we all miss that sense of liveness that sense of spontaneity that you don't necessarily get with the screen stuff going back to uh, some of the music that we were talking about earlier mm. you did mention that you and your mates were kind of reminiscing about these tracks so i mean were the songs featured were they songs you listened to what like what did you listen to growing up? definitely rapper's delight getting jiggy with it you know <laughs> i was probably more of a, a dre and biggie guy myself tribe called quest we could have had so many um songs in there but i think the songs that were chosen they cover more bases perhaps you know if, if, if we went down the road of my nwa or public enemy that might have alienated some of the some of the crowd so what we what we ended up with was stuff that you know managed to kind of keep most people in the room and relatable yeah yeah yeah. no i think they were definitely good choices also i have to say at the beginning of the play when you and adrian sing lean on me chills it's beautiful oh wow um and i mean i just wanted to talk to you about your singing like <laughs> have well, you done a lot of singing um, like musicals and stuff at all i i went to the weekend arts college when i was 15 and we did everything, you know, all the performing arts disciplines. Um, I'm a, it's something I've always done. I haven't done much in terms of musicals. I think there's a kind of secret part of me that kind of thinks one day maybe I'll, you know, become a recording artist. I've always loved music on that level, but, but there's a, also a part of me that doesn't, you know, really like singing on demand. Uh, I mean, Adrian has been in many musicals. He's been in Company, um, Sweeney Todd, and plays the piano beautifully, is a, is a brilliant musician all around. Um, so although I've been in a couple of shows that have music in them, but I've always been the kind of straight guy who maybe sings one song. Um, you know, growing up, I did Chicago at, at college twice, you know, that, that sort of thing. But I've always loved to sing. I haven't done as much professionally. So it, it was a little bit like a coming out for me. And I absolutely loved it. And I think that Adrian and I have some great, you know, sympathetic resonance, some great harmonic likeness um, yeah. together. And so that was that was a lovely thing to discover with another actor. 
I would love to see you in a musical, honestly. It was brilliant. Let's talk a bit more about this whole process of live streaming, because Mm. that must be slightly odd as an actor. Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with the camera, so um, I know how to perform in front of the camera. And I've done some NT Live productions, but they're usually recorded and edited afterwards before they go out. We did one with LeBlanc and with Medea at the National. But to have the cameras there, you really have to think of it as a, as a theatre piece. You really have to still be playing as if you're playing to an audience that, that aren't there, you know. So, But I think also there's a third eye consideration for how the camera's viewing what you're doing, but just not too much, not as much as if I was on a film set. You know, I'd be more focused on hitting my mark and, and making sure that my performance fit the size of the camera. Whereas with this, you've got it's a multi-camera sensory. So it's really left to the editors and the controllers. They're looking at the monitor and the director to decide on how that story is then told and put across. So for example, things like the fact that you don't see my feet when I'm dancing, you don't have control over that. But there are limitations to what they can capture and how that story gets told. And I think as the sort of stream went on, you know, my wife watched every single performance and she said that got a lot better. You just, because it's a question of how much you show, you know, like, for example, do you show us going up stage and changing into a different costume before we come back on? Or do you show the table coming up? You know, how much of the actual theatrical experience are you trying to capture whilst also taking into consideration the scope that a camera can zoom in and focus in on a face and the emotions. Do you sacrifice one for the other? And so we had to rely very much on on the expertise of the people who made those decisions and just stay in the moment. Actually, the benefits of that is that between the two of us, because there's no one else in the room apart from the cameraman, we can really focus on each other and that relationship. The fact that there was nobody there, there's nobody laughing, there's nobody, you really just have to sort of really stay really clear and focused on on the storytelling and each other's rhythms. You only have each other. And actually there's a lot to be said for that in terms of how that creates the intensity of this particular piece. I'm sure it'd be very different when we're, we're in front of a live audience, but it was actually quite a revelation in many ways, in terms of how in-depth you can become with a performance. Is there any way in which it felt like you were still in the rehearsal room when there wasn't the audience there? No, because in the rehearsal room, we didn't have, you know, the costumes, the lights, Mm -hmm. all these other things added, you know, other layers to the performance, to the experience, and made it real, <laughs> you know, because when we were in rehearsal, it was, you know, we were in a, an open room and was, and at times you're thinking, how's that going to work? If I walk back up stage and then I turn around, what are they focusing on? What's going to be the focus? If it was live in front of an audience, you know that you're always on. You have to be quite specific uh, about when you don't want to be watched or, or when the focus is, you have to kind of direct that. Whereas in this case, the cameras were doing that for you. So we kept a sense of what this show would be in front of a live audience and just allowed the cameras to, to pick it up. But the lighting and the sound design and all of those elements 
we didn't have them in rehearsal. And so it wasn't until we actually came to the couple of days we had to do the camera rehearsal. I mean, everything was so quick and, you know, I mean, I've not worked that intensely, you know, the rehearsal period and the week of long of tech and then the two day camera rehearsal. I've not worked that intensely for years, you know, and certainly not during the pandemic. So we all had to really kind of know our paces. And I haven't danced as well since I was, a, you know, a teenager, you know, learning at, at the Weekend Arts College. So just there was so much that we had to sort of really kind of get our heads into a completely different space to make it work. Was there anything that you and Adrian did to like get the energy that you, I mean, because you were talking about how like if you have the audience, you can kind of bounce off them. But how do you get that energy without the audience? We did get to perform it in front of staff. And also Blanche was a really good outside eye in being able to kind of respond to things that were being told in the story. But a lot of it was guesswork. And, and in the end, it was, this makes me laugh. This moment seems real to me. We had to rely upon each other for those calls. And, uh, and maybe sometimes you can be too focused on what an audience might think or not think you sort of have to kind of trust your instincts and just see where that will take you and 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 be true to yourself and i think this show was a real test of that you also mentioned that you and adrian don't touch at all in the whole thing the whole thing was yeah. socially distanced I, I particularly enjoyed this moment where he's like handing you a jacket <laughs> like, yeah. yes try it on and then i put it back and he steps back all of that was really finely tuned. At one point, I was going to play the piano as well, but then we thought, actually, if he's played it, I'd have to sanitise or wipe the keys, and that would bring you out of the piece again. So just the decision of when the music comes in, and even we had to have um, a thing made so that Adrian could do the, the punching, and we would stay socially distanced at the same time as well. That's not a real... Um, piece of um, gym equipment that was created specifically for the show. Our chairs were uh, in rehearsal. One of them had an A on it and the other one had a D on it, you know, so we, we didn't touch each other's chairs. Even the cups, I put a cup down. Adrian doesn't pick it up by, by the same, you know, so if I put it down by the handle, he holds it by the, just so many things. Like having to have a tray, for example, if Adrian had to strike my props, we wouldn't contaminate each other. And we were tested three times a week, but it was just, we didn't want people to watch the piece and then go, mm, that doesn't seem right. Or, you know, we wanted people to feel safe so that they didn't pop out the story. They stay stay in it. Um, and, and hopefully it's not noticeable, but I do think the fact that we couldn't get that close meant that the need for each other was intensified by the fact that we had to keep that distance. You know, I walk outside and I, we're, everybody's wearing masks. You can't, you can't see people's faces. You can't, I think we have a real human desire to connect. We create so many oxytonin by hugging, you know, this is a human fundamental need that we are unable to execute at this time. And so it informs how we, or maybe will inform the stories that we tell going on from this. And I think even him itself kind of reflects that to an extent. I'm not sure about when um, Lilita was writing it, but that idea of, yeah, just wanting this human connection, that is really what mm. it's about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And loss and the struggles of a man, a family, the, the past, the fact that so many of us have come from 
families, you know, I, I, I mean, this is so similar to my own story, you know, in, in terms of my own parents, kids showing up, <laughs> you know, um, this is your brother or everybody has a very, very interesting family makeup, I think, you know, um, if, if not within your own nuclear family, certainly within your history. So this is a universal story that is rarely told. And so all the more poignant the fact that we all have that in our own lives. What do you most look forward to when the audiences can return? You shape a show by how people respond to it. There's such a kind of exchange between an audience and performers and creatives that you can't replicate in any other way. And I really look forward to being able to share with an audience, share the love again in a room. And it's that thing, that ethereal thing about theatre that it happens once and then it's gone you know there's no record of it with him there's there is and will be but so often even each night is different and so there is a sort of an ephemeral kind of um, essence to to theatre that's really special it's for one moment only it's right in that moment and and I look forward to doing that again in the play there's a moment um, and we kind of talked about how racism and the issues of race are not central to the narrative mm, mm, but mm. in the background we see there are certain situations that occur i don't yeah. want to give any spoilers but there's a moment where benny uh, talks about how his son has been involved in a demonstration yeah i saw um in an article last year that you were also talking about how uh, you'd been attending Black Lives Matter protests with your children, kind of how important mm. that was. Mm. So, I, I mean, I just wanted to open up the conversation in terms of how mm. are you about uh, the events that happened last year in terms of how far they're going to change things and I guess the relevance to your children as well. I've got two teenagers and um, two younger kids um, eight and four and um, my two teenagers are 18 and 20 and so you know the world that they're growing up in is very different to the one that I was growing up in and I think it's mentioned in the play that the young people of today are saying enough is enough when we were growing up it was like if we change ourselves if we try and get good education if we go to the right school if we speak in the right way we we were constantly trying to change ourselves to fit in these young people are saying no the world needs to change. The world is faulty. And I think that that is a really important part in the play where Gil says, well, that's progress. That is actually progress. And it makes you reflect on the protests in a completely different way. It, it just it heightens the need for change and the right that we have to ask for change and to form a more inclusive world and to challenge the hierarchies in a healthy and positive but unapologetic way. And I think that that's a really important aspect of the world that we live in now, that where difference can live side by side. There doesn't have to be an apology or a judgment placed on people standing up for what they believe in. I think that that's the only way that we're gonna be able to move forward as a society. I also really enjoy the way it deals with this reference to protest, because I mean, it's, you're not entirely sure exactly when the play is set, but 
obviously audiences looking at it now are going to be like, oh yes, the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm -hmm. Or even the the riots, the London riots, where Mark Duggan was shot in Tottenham and then the, the way that that sparked a protest. You know, I mean, people call it a riot. It's just semantics in my view. And people were dissatisfied. People were unhappy. This was a culmination of years of oppression in its many forms. We look back on the civil rights movement and we talk about it in such sort of glowing, heroic terms. But at the time, the protests against the Vietnam War, the protests against the Gulf War, these were seen as anti-establishment and looked down upon and reviewed in the press as, you know, these people were animals. They were, why can't they just sit down and shut up? And now we talk about them in retrospect as moments of change that were positive and we have epitaphs and statues raised to these people and that's happened throughout history it's happening now it's happening now 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 all the time we just have to stay abreast of it and keep the pressure on to create a world where we're not a sort of marker in history we are history we are part of that story i know the government has kind of started a timeline now for their imagination for when things will open up again. I mean, obviously, there's, there's no real sense of when things are opening. But as we look forward, do you have any thoughts on how the theatre industry maybe could or should emerge or change uh, when it reopens? Well, I think, you know, it's going to take a while for people to feel comfortable again, to sit in a space together and share in the way that, you know, everything will change. What is the new normal? You know, we I don't think we've actually decided on what that is yet. It's still in formation. Some of the things that we've learned during this time regarding how to reach more audiences, the stories that we should be telling. I even say that, you know, having a streaming platform for a show so it can reach people internationally, you know, might be a plus to add to a theatre's considerations in terms of how to present their work. So there's a lot to take from this time that would be very positive. Like I say, I don't think there's any substitute for the live experience, but the live experience can reach more people and the stories that are told can include more voices. And, and I think that that's uh, an amazing thing that has come out of this, of this time. And, and, and I hope that that continues. Have you got any other projects that you uh, want to tell us about? I mean, I'm always fascinated by the past and, and how that impacts on, on the present. And I'm still trying to put together um, a piece about our Black British past. Uh, our, this is the platform for it. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the great voices who have shaped British politics and identities pre-Windrush and and characters like Robert Wedderburn and Ignatius Sancho and Kwame Nkrumah, Marcus Garvey, you know, all of these amazing people who had such a impact, you know, and when we talk about Black History Month, often we sort of talk about the American story. Uh, we rarely talk about the South African story. Women that have had a huge, Mary Prince and um, Nanny of the Maroons, all of these people had a huge impact on the fight for justice and human rights in Britain and internationally. And I think that those stories have yet to be told. So that's something that I'm constantly sort of looking at ways to bring that to a larger audience, because I just don't think people know about these people uh, in the same way that those 
lives have been forgotten. It's almost like, you know, I mean, I think the world is changing and we are looking at British history, starting to look at British history, but it's not being taught in schools, but we're looking at the, the scope of British history and that it's not just about Henry VIII and, and the Tudors, or even Western history is not just about the Greeks and the Romans. It's the fact that, that world history, you know, human history, is a much more interesting and vibrant and important story to tell. And, and so that's something that keeps me um, excited and, and inspired and, you know, it inspires my life. So I'd, I'd like to find a way to share that with a larger audience. So are you thinking of writing something? Is this? Yeah, I, I'm very nervous to say that. Okay. I, I have those skills, but but I'm definitely um, trying to find ways to dramatise some of those stories, yes. That sounds amazing. And also definitely the time for it. These are definitely the stories. Yeah, there's a hunger for it, absolutely. And it's long overdue, you know. It'd be, it'd be amazing. The connections between, you know, the labour movement and the uh, abolitionist movement in Britain. London has been a multicultural society for much longer than people realise. You know, even the idea of multiculturalism hopefully will become a word of the past because it, it's defunct, you know, there is no such thing as one. We are and have always been made up of the world. I'm not saying that people didn't live in smaller pockets and but, but their history was shaped by what was happening in the world. And that's, the sooner we celebrate that, the happier you will be as a species, I think, you know, um, and some of the things that have kept certain groups down or, or quiet become no longer relevant. You know, whenever I hear somebody saying, you know, go back to your own country or, or any of those other kind of things that we've lived under or any form of racism or oppression of any form, I, I just think, check your history books. You just haven't looked back far enough to see when societies lived in in harmony it is possible for us to to have an inclusion as as just a, a fact it is absolutely possible we have done it for thousands of years it's the only way that humanity has survived because of this and it's only in the last 600 years i would say where we've lost sight of that i think and a lot of what we are trying to change and fighting against now is because of that power base being in the west and its influence on the rest of the world like all empires you know they choose to appropriate everything that they've learned and make it their own and glorify themselves to the exclusion and the detriment of the rest of the human race and i think what we're discovering now is that that, that, that doesn't a need to be the case and it's not true and and we have to find ways to sing that even louder and and to change the world for the better that, that's a lovely kind of thought of where we want the theater to go as we move forward as well like what is it that we want to see on our stages i think there is definitely a hunger to see these histories and these stories told and show the link between what we revere in terms of you know Shakespeare and the story of what was happening in Spain or Venice or the Songhai or in Abyssinia, you know the whole world has had a has an influence on our culture in Britain, and we will see those links once we start to explore the history and see how connected we've always been, and therefore we should continue to be. Some of the great renaissance of culture and art has come about through collaboration of different cultures. 
You saw that in the 80s, you know, when the Irish immigrants and the Jamaican immigrants created ska and punk. It's through collaboration, cultural mixing and blending that all of these incredible expressions of human endeavour become so exciting. It's what keeps us alive. It's what makes us human. Just to finish, I've got some quick fire questions for you. Okay. Can you tell me a book that you always have to have in your collection? Huh. That's a very good question. There's loads of books that I haven't finished. <laughs> One of which is about Toussaint L'Ouverture. So this is uh, by C.L.R. James, and it's called The Black Jacobins. It's all about Toussaint L'Ouverture and the revolution in Haiti. That's a book that I keep trying to finish. It's a tough read, to be honest with you, but a very important book. Anything by Toni Morrison. I absolutely love everything that she writes. I don't read enough. I'm often reading scripts and dealing with kids. But um, I would say for a long time, it was the complete works of Shakespeare. I would often sort of dip into that and read um, speeches and stuff that I've performed in the past, because I think there's just so much that makes me feel good about life and art. God, what else? Oh, I've got The um, the Artist's Way. That's another book that I always carry around with me. Not that I actually use it, but that's another um, great book. It's um, all about how to discover your own creative self. And I suppose that's that's it. Oh, oh, another one. Another one is um, Staying Power by Peter Fryer, which is the history of black people in Britain. Oh, OK, cool. Amazing. Fascinating. Well, a whole library of books. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those, the, 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 that's enough to be getting on with right now. <laughs> Next, a song or album that defines the soundtrack of your life to date. Ah, to date, oh, well, it's probably something by. I, I was a massive Prince fan, you know, rest his soul. Um, but that is a tough one. I know. That is a tough one. At the moment, do you know what I've I've been I've been going back and listening to like some Public Enemy and stuff like that. You know, do you know what I'm going to say? Bill Withers. I'm going to say Bill Withers. Um, the, the very best of Bill Withers. Oh no, like, that's not a. I could say um, either that. Oh, Stevie, Stevie, Stevie Wonder. Okay, <laughs> songs in the key of life. There you go. There's, there it is. <laughs> okay, uh, a film or TV show that you can watch or have watched repeatedly. The Princess Bride, because it just makes me, it's like one of my favourite films, I absolutely love it. Do the Right Thing, I quite love Do the Right Thing. There's a film, there's a French film called Les Enfants de Paradis, which is Children of Paradise, which is a super long movie. It's like in three parts, it's all set in a theatre, and it's probably one of my favourite films of all time, so yeah, I'm going to say that one. The first stage production you saw, and what it meant to you? I saw a play called, I think it was called Fuente Ovohuna at the National Theatre when I was still at, um, still at secondary school. A drama teacher took us to see it. And it's funny that you know, it was on at the Cottesloe. Um, it had Clive Rowe in it and, uh, and a bunch of other amazing actors who I've since worked with. But yeah, I was still at secondary school when I went to see that in the Cottesloe at the National and it was set in a sort of town and it was all about the break up down of these people's lives and they were they were fighting for justice of some sort. I can't even remember what the play was about, but I just remember watching that and thinking, this is the most amazing thing ever. It really informed my dream of becoming an actor. And it's funny that I should also then 
end up working there myself, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was very, really formative. The first play you watched and then you started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, I'd love to see it again, actually. Um, and finally, what's made you sad, mad, and glad this week? Okay, um, what's made me sad? Continuation of the pandemic, <laughs> probably. You know, the, the amount of people that we've lost, that's very saddening. Um, I spoke to a friend recently who lost her brother, and again, he was 52. He had no underlying health issues. You know, I was really feeling for her and all the people who have lost people recently. What's made me mad, I think what continues to make me mad is is the inability that people have to see or consider other people's lives. And I'm sure I'm no different, but just the inability for people to, to hear and see others and give them the same consideration. And so, you know, the storming of the Capitol is probably the most recent example of that just out and out hatred for other people for no good reason and um glad what makes me glad is god i want to say something profound but it's probably just you know the fact that my family are all safe and you know oh a picture my cousin sent me a picture of my mum who's in ghana at the moment and she, she and an old her friend so my cousin and they're not actually sisters we're not actually related but she's my cousin that's my auntie and my mum and they you know came here to England in the 60s you know and made a life worked my mum was a nurse my aunt was um, a carer and just seeing them sitting in my mum's house in Ghana chilling absolutely chilling and there's something about the way that they're relaxing and smiling it's just a shot but it just captures years of pounding the pavement, going to Ridley Market, you know, mm. looking after their kids, these two matriarchs just sitting there, just smiling like, you know, we've got the rest of our lives to just relax and enjoy and reminisce. And, you know, all our kids are, are well and grown. We've done our job, you know, and it's just something about that shot that just made me really kind of smile and feel good inside that it's possible to go through what they went through and to find peace that's a really nice way to finish actually just to remind everyone where can audiences catch him him is now on demand from the third to the ninth of this month if you go to the almeda platform you can you can see it and book tickets there i think there will be um, sky arts will stream it for a period of time as well after that and then we are in talks about doing a live production. And so hopefully people will be able to come and sit and enjoy and dance and vibe with us when we, uh, when we do it live. So this show definitely has a life beyond the stream. And um, I'm really looking forward to doing that. I am also really looking forward to hopefully seeing it in the future. <laughs> yeah. Thank uh, you very much, Daniel. Thank you so much. Daniel.